This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. Why in the world am I getting so excited about spending 20% of my time in my sweet spot? Like, that's crazy. You know, what? what's that say about us being in our calling and work if I'm, if I'm getting excited about 20% of my time being in my sweet spot? Ted Olson, Richard Clark. Ted Olson, you are the editor of Behemoth and a senior editor. Is it a senior editor? I think I might be the senior editor. Is that how it? Are we? Is that how we're doing it now? The senior editor. I don't think there's another senior editor. Haven't we had senior editors before? We have. Like multiple ones. Yeah, but then we always change what that means. So these okay. days, I'm whatever. It's a title. It means I'm the wise guy in the corner stroking my beard and saying. What you should really do in Christianity today is this. <laughs> Tell me about it. Yeah. So you used to be the managing editor of Christianity Today. I used to have your job, online managing editor, although back then we called it managing editor, comma, online. That's what I call it sometimes. In yeah. fact, that's what we called it in the first episode of The Calling. Caitlin and I had a conversation about how you do it. Yeah. Uh, commas. Commas good. Commas. Editors um, love commas. How am I doing at this job? <laughs> on a scale from one to ten we should probably talk offline <laughs> no you're doing great i like what you're doing it's fun okay i especially like the local church thanks the local church is a special section of ct and it includes this podcast actually so this podcast is technically a part of that i was trying to segue you're in it right but also, now oh, wow i'm in the matrix that's deep okay so uh have you heard of todd wilson I've heard of multiple Todd Wilsons. Tell me about this Todd Wilson. <laughs> That's a good point. There's actually two Todd Wilsons out there. and It's very confusing because we're acquainted with both of them. There's one Todd Wilson who's uh, part of the pastor theologians movement. That's not who I'm talking to today. There's another Todd Wilson who is the co-founder of Exponential, which many of you listening will know as like a church planners conference focused on multiplication or actually beyond multiplication, isn't it? They have a new name for it now? I don't know. Anyway. I don't know. I know it is the Church Planters Network. That's right. So it's a Church Planters Network and series of conferences. They've got conferences all over America. They've got like an East and a West, and I think they've got a Midwest coming up here in Chicago area. But you talk to him because why? Because he's an interesting guy. He's He wrote a book about calling, so oh, wow, seems like a good fit, right? Calling. Yeah, I was like, hey, you know about calling. Come on our show. So he actually spends a lot of the show telling us about his views on calling. Really helpful, sort of uh, boiled down stuff that's, that, that you can grab onto some handles. You can think about concretely and then move forward with your life. Concepts like sweet spot. So uh, yeah, it's uh, one thing interesting about Todd Wilson. Used to be a nuclear engineer. Oh, Wow. I was going to say that's everything you need to know about him, but you need to know more about him. Well, we're about to hear a lot more about him because you interviewed him for like an hour. That's right. And here he is. Where are you from? 
I am from Hoffman Estates. I grew up right uh, down the street from Willow Creek, actually. I'm oh, now nice. in Washington, D.C. Okay, so now you're in D.C. Do they have a primary? How does that work? We just had ours on Super Tuesday. It was on... Uh, D.C.'s primary. Well, it was actually Virginia. I'm in uh, oh, Virgi- Northern okay, Virginia. Okay, so D.C., I didn't know... <laughs> I'm sorry. I probably should know these things. This is like one of those things I should know, but DC has like its own its own and so many things that it seems like that maybe they'd have And I don't their believe they've had I think they do and I don't think they've had theirs yet. But okay. Virginia just had theirs last week. And who who did we, who did who won that primary? Uh, Trump won that one. Trump. Yep. Rubio in second. Yeah, interesting. And they share their the delegates are in proportion, so in reality even though Trump won, he got one more delegate than Rubio, Rubio did got. okay. Yeah. yeah. Well, we'll see. I guess by the time this podcast comes out, it will all be start. It'll start it'll getting be like clear. old news. Cool. Well, I'm talking to Todd Wilson. You're the author of a book called More, which is should be out around the time this podcast comes out, if it's not out already. And you're also what? What would you? What's your relationship to Exponential? Are you the founder? I'm one of the founders of Exponential. Okay. So you're one of the founders of Exponential. When did you found that? Oh my goodness, this is our eleventh year. Eleven years. Yep. Of the conference? We we started the conference. The, the conference is actually about 40 years old now. And about 11 years ago, Dave Ferguson and I, uh, Dave's a pastor here locally in Naperville, we agreed to, to kind of run this 35, at the time, 35-year-old conference uh, for a year or two. We got in at just the right time. It wasn't that we knew how to run conferences, but we jumped into a conference that had been running about 200 people for 35 years. Mm-hmm. And agreed we would run it for a year or two. And in the first year, boom, it jumped to 900 people and sold out. The second year, 1,800. And it was about two years into the conferencing that we that we realized we were touching a nerve on church planting and church multiplication. Yeah. And so that's when we actually officially founded Exponential, was about two years into the conferencing. So Exponential kind of circled around the backside of the conference. Okay, so we'll come back to that. Before that, I want to ask you a question that I ask everyone at the beginning of the podcast, and it is, how would you describe your calling? I I would define calling first okay. as sort of God's whisper, his, his voice, uh, his equipping to have us join him in his mission here on earth. Uh, he gives us each a special equipping. I think there's probably two parts to calling. There's there's the general or common calling that's shared by all Christians everywhere all the time, which I think is rooted in discipleship. We're all called to be disciples who make disciples where we are. Then I think there's a unique part of calling, which is our equipping uh, to join God in the, the mission here on earth. For me, that unique equipping, I I am created to be sort of somewhere between an entrepreneur and an engineer. So I like to entrepreneurially do the new things, but to solve issues. What I believe I'm called to do is to is to what's called envisage opportunity to help other people create an image or a picture of future possibilities. And then where do I do that? Anywhere that there is exponential or significant opportunity for kingdom impact. Okay. So un- unlike a lot of people who are passionate about specific causes, maybe water wells, maybe putting shoes on kids, even church planting, I've found it exponential, but my calling is not to church planting. Uh, it just so happens that there's really not much more that's more entrepreneurial than church planting. So as an entrepreneur <laughs> who likes to create images or pictures of future possibilities where there's significant kingdom opportunity, exponential is a very nice fit for that calling. Do you think like most p- church planters have that, s- have a similar feeling of like entrepreneurship or do you think some of 
is there like a kind of entrepreneurial church planner and then like a like a less like a less entrepreneurial church planner? I think absolutely. I think it's I think the analogy to the business world is is very close. If you think about small business startups, mm-hmm. you get a lot of small business startups that are done by entrepreneurs who are just very entrepreneurial. You also get a lot of small business startups that are not by entrepreneurs. They're mm-hmm. they're people who they just have an idea. Yeah, yeah. They have a passion for something, uh, and and they jump on that. Typically, like the people you'd see on Shark Tank are those types of people. They're like, I just made this thing, and now I need someone to tell me Shark what to Tank's do. Shark Tank's a good way to look at it. If you look at the people who come on Shark Tank, not every one of them are entrepreneurs. Some of them, you're, you're like, they couldn't lead them themselves out of a box. Yeah. Like, you know, they're probably not, but they've got a good idea. And I think church planting is probably pretty similar. You get... Uh, you know, if we talk about the fivefold gifting of some are apostles and some prophets and some shepherds and some evangelists and some teachers, you do get quite a few church planters who have that apostolic, you know, starting pioneering gene. But you also have a lot of church planters that their deal is shepherding and teaching. And they feel they want to plant the church so they can do shepherding and teaching. And that's not necessarily, you know, got that entrepreneurial streak to it. Can you talk about the moment you became convinced of your calling, in particular with this entrepreneurship piece? Yes. I am an engineer by trade, a nuclear engineer. Spent about 15 years in the nuclear Navy. Loved what I was doing. Uh, Naval reactors, hands down the greatest engineering organization in the world. And I loved what I was doing for 15 years there. Uh, God got a hold of me for about two years, wrestling match, sort of in my 30s. I had a young uh, midlife crisis. Uh, I, I looked ahead and said, I've got a lot of years left. And is this what I'm going to do with the rest of my life? Right at that time, a guy named Bob Buford, who wrote the book Halftime, which was about mid midlife issues. Uh, his book came out. I read the book and said, this is exactly the tension I'm, I'm having. What was that tension? The tension was uh, I was about 15 years into my career, doing well, conquering hills, and and looking ahead and saying, boy, I've got another 20 to 25 years left. Is, am I just going to keep doing more of the same, more right. of this hill yeah. conquering? And the closer you get to that mid-career point, especially when you get to the point where you realize I have less years left than I've had working so far. That's what creates that perfect storm of a midlife crisis for people where they're they're starting to see the clock ticking down of I've got less and less time for impact, for legacy, for for things. And I think that in both healthy and unhealthy ways produces a churn for people to, to, and that's what was happening to me in my early thirties. I had really risen quickly in promotions and got into this wrestling match with God about two years into it. I felt like God just audibly spoke to me to go into ministry. Uh, I was in a highly disciplined field of nuclear engineering at the time. So it wasn't that entrepreneurial. It was highly disciplined. But as soon as I went into ministry, an entrepreneurial switch went off the day I went in. In my first 10 years in ministry, a whole series of entrepreneurial startups. I've I've started multiple different national nonprofits, uh, including Exponential. And you can just see the pattern of that entrepreneurial thing happening. It was about six years into full-time ministry. Your question, you know, when when did you just know you're calling? Yeah, yeah. Bob Buford, who had written the book Halftime, uh, an entrepreneur who founded Leadership Network and the ministry Halftime, he and I got connected once I was in ministry. And Bob was wanting to do some work with me, and I was loving what I was doing at Exponential. 
But Bob, here's here's the day this happened. Bob said to me, I want you to come work with me 20% of your time. And he said, and here's the deal. The 20% of your time you're working with me, I want you to be 100% in your sweet spot. I don't want you to do anything that's not in your sweet spot. And I have to tell you, Richard, simultaneously, three emotions went right to the core of my soul. The first was, yes, mm-hmm. a, a job 100% in my sweet spot. It was like, yes. Now, secondly, I have responsibility high in my strength finders profile, so you don't want to overpromise and underdeliver. Uh-huh. So the second emotion was, oh, no, uh-huh. how would I know if I was 100%? If Bob's going to hold me accountable to being 100% of my sweet spot, how would I know? That led to a third emotion, which was the kiss of death, which was, why in the world am I getting so excited about spending 20% of my time in my sweet spot? Like, that's crazy. You know, what? what's that say about the state of uh, of us being in our calling and work if I'm, if I'm getting excited about 20% of my time being in my sweet spot? That now put the engineering hat back on. Bob's question put me on a path for several years of really looking at what it means to live in your sweet spot. Uh, and and there are thousands of sweet spots in nature. So as an engineer, I just started with what God's already done in nature, those thousands of sweet spots. Gun scopes, basketballs, this room we're in has an acoustic sweet spot. Every sweet spot has a design, a purpose, and a position. Now, interesting, those three elements of all sweet spots line up perfectly with the same questions that men and women have been asking since the fall in the garden. Who am I created to be? A design question. What am I made to do? A purpose question. And where am I supposed to do it? A position question. So I I have come to believe that if people can figure out the answer to those three questions and how it integrates together for them, they'll be in their sweet spot. And that's what I've spent uh, increasing amounts of time is helping people to do that. So before you sort of had a realization of that calling, you you said you were in ministry for like six years, right? right. So what were what were you doing in ministry during that period of time? Well, you know, our our lives are stories, Richard, that you can you can look back and read the story and see where it was being written and then where it's at and where it's headed into the future. And in those six years, I was doing sort of serial entrepreneur work. I, I was being an entrepreneur who was helping others create images and pictures of the future where there was significant kingdom opportunity. And here's what's interesting. Before I could even articulate that as my calling, there's this affinity to church planting. And what was I doing with church planters? Helping entrepreneurs, entrepreneurially, to create a picture of the future, a church plant, in all the different forms that might take, where those church plants could be most effective. Now, if you jump to the issue of calling at this point, other end of the spectrum is me helping individuals with calling. Well, there for me, there is no more leverage thing to do than coming alongside of a person, helping them create an image or a picture of the future for them via their calling, and pos- helping them position where they can be most effective for kingdom impact. So even though the, the, the expression of the calling is different, church planting in one case, helping people with their calling in another, uh, the expression transcends the specifics and the elements are there. Yeah. Yeah. So how long ago was that when you had that realization? That was about eight years ago now. Eight years. Was there um was there a moment since that time where you start where you doubted that calling? Or was it just total certainty from that point? 
You know, I'd like to say there's been a doubt, but there hasn't. It's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's just been clear. One of the things that happens when you get clarity on your calling, yeah. Pete Richardson, who did my life plan a number of years ago, he calls it the North Star. When he does a life planning process with you, which I now facilitate with others, you're creating a compass for your life. And when you get clarity on who you're created to be, what you're made to do, and where you're supposed to do it, it is a powerful yes-no filter. Prior to eight years ago, I could say yes to just about any opportunity as someone who loves opportunity. Once I went through life planning and got more clarity on my calling, all of a sudden I'm saying no to to most of the opportunities that come up. Not because they're not good opportunities, but it, you know the what they say, good can be the enemy to great. Mm-hmm. And And once you get clarity on your calling and living in that sweet spot, it's just a powerful filter for what you say yes and no to. So what have you, as you have been involved in local church ministries, establishing local churches, um, and you, you have a unique position where you are able to sort of talk about what a church should be like, sort of ex nihilo almost, like right. in terms of like just creating something, which is like, I think that's kind of an appeal of being an entrepreneur in general when you're starting anything. Like that's... That's uh, it. You can create something that doesn't have sort of the baggage that an existing thing would have. What do you value most when you're doing this, like about of the local church? What are the things that you are super focused on that no nothing you create doesn't have this aspect, particularly in the local church part of it? Well, I would say uh, for me at this point, it's more a championing a message than than maybe the concrete part. And here's what I mean by that. Uh, the mobilization of the priesthood of all believers, that's the future. If you look at the work I do at Exponential, you know, part of what we're trying to do right now is help churches change their scorecard. We, we have embraced the scorecard of the largest, fastest growing churches is what you want to be. That is not multiplication. That is not an exponential thing into the future. And in large part, it, it's a strength, but Home Depot's old motto of you can do it, we can help versus we can do it, you can help. Yeah, yeah. We have largely done church in America with we can do it, you can help. The professional side of of ministry is we're the ones who can do it. Now we need to mobilize the people in the church to help us do what we're doing. Right. Um, I sincerely from the bottom of my heart believe the direction we need to be going and the future is to flip that equation around and and for the church to take the posture of we you can do it god has given you a unique calling he's giving you a unique way to go in and fill every corner of society with the fullness of jesus now how do we help you mobilize on that on that calling i couldn't be more excited right now that the, the this issue of personal calling and if you just look at what's happening in the personal calling space right now, there's more books, more resources, more interest. It is because it's what's waiting to happen in the church. The question I think we have to wrestle with at this point is, is the church going to participate in that or not? Is the church going to miss this huge opportunity with mobilizing uh, people on their calling or not? Because it's a huge opportunity for the church that's in front of us right now. It does seem like the church as a whole has sort of sensed what you're sensing because there are there are a number of organizations that have risen up to become like de facto, they're not quite denominations, they're networks. They call themselves networks, but they are centered around this concept of church planting, which is interesting to me. Right. I, I'm curious if like you, 
if you see that as like, does that satisfy you? Or do you think there should there be, should, should be some sense in which the church as a whole should go further? I would say it's a little bit bittersweet. I think that in the 10 to 11 years we've been doing exponential, we are seeing the needle move. The interest in church planting, the healthy expressions of the church that are, that are emerging and forming, uh, we're very excited about all of that. If I were to give you where the bitter part, where the concern is, is if we just keep doing more of the same, this idea of we can do it, you can help us do our thing. If yeah. we, we can start a bunch of new churches, but if it, if they are really just professionally run and not about mobilizing people on their God-given uniqueness and mission, then I think we're missing the huge opportunity. So what what I'd like to see happening, and it's what I'm personally engaging more and more these days, is is moving from not just the starting of new churches, but the starting of new churches that are about mobilizing people on mission. So what does that look like sort of on the ground for a church to be about mobilizing people? Well, you know, there's nothing new under the sun. I think it's a strong discipleship-oriented center. Hmm. The poor, core purpose of the church is discipleship. And the issue of coming, if you think about what it takes to come alongside somebody, and, and, and let's say instead of we need 237 people in our children's ministry this week. We'll take any warm bodies we can get. Coming alongside individuals in a more boutique, coaching, mobilization way, it's consistent with discipleship. It, it, it's messy. It takes more time. So I, I think for churches of the future to really get more into this space of mobilizing people and calling, we're going to have to move away from some of our large, scalable, franchisable programs and we're going to have to figure out how to the one-on-one, the one-on-three, you know. Bob Buford says all the time, my mentor, uh, the most important thing people need is permission, permission to be who God's made them to be, encouragement to take the next steps in that, yeah. and accountability for doing it. Permission, encouragement, accountability. And I think the church has to figure out what's that look like to provide permission, encouragement, and accountability for not to come help us do our thing, but for the church to flip that around and say, we want to help you do what God's already made you to do. What would you say in the time you've been in, involved in ministry and in local church ministry in particular, what's been your biggest struggle? Yeah, I, when I, Richard, first came into ministry uh, back a number of years ago, I was the executive pastor at our church. That was actually my first position. And so you know, I came out of the marketplace I was overseeing a whole lot of people in the Navy at a large industrial facility. And now I come on staff at a church where you've got a one to a hundred supervisory ratio. You know, it's not like the marketplace with a one to 10 or a one to 15. Right. You know, all of a sudden the staff that I was overseeing are overseeing a hundred people and they're volunteers. Wow. Yeah. And so I, I think the, the thing that it's it both frustrates me, but it's the opportunity is that our large growing churches are large and growing because they've figured out how to manage that process of mobilizing volunteers and the programs and all the things that need to be uh, done there. At the same time, I'll call it the feeding of that beast. We need 200 and some people in our children's area and we need 73 people setting up. And if you just go through the overhead requirements of mobilizing volunteers just to run the Sunday show, I've lived it firsthand. And to do church the way we're doing it, there's no way around it. We've got to do that. 
But if the future is mobilizing people on mission into every crack and cranny of society to carry the fullness of Jesus and to overflow that into society, the very best asset we have is the unique gifting and calling that God's given each person to do that. Well, that just finding the time and energy to mobilize people in that way goes contrary to the mobilizing 237 people into children's ministry and 75 people to do set up and tear down. And that's probably been the most frustrating thing for me is figuring out when God seems to be blessing some of our prevailing church models at this point, but there's a very large feeding of the beast to do that. And how do you, amidst that, mobilize people on their calling in a way that it really is a you can do it? How do we help you uh, go into every corner of society. Yeah. So in that first, like, say, year of ministry, did you find yourself like just entirely too busy finding yourself like trying to juggle all these plates all the time in terms of like people that you were trying to sort of manage? And even I mean, manage is like the bare minimum, right? Like you're trying to help them grow and become better. So were was that kind of the sense that you were having? Yeah, I, I would say in that first couple of years, I was so overwhelmed with trying to keep up with the requirements of growing the church yeah. and all it takes to grow the church. Yeah, yeah. That honestly, I didn't even understand how against the grain that was on actually mobilizing people into their area of call, calledness. Um, it wasn't till several years later, looking back on it, that the tension came up for me to say, oh my goodness, I believe so strongly in this mobilizing people on calling. And I look back to when I'm an executive pastor trying to help grow a church and the very things I needed to spend my time on and the things I needed to do often went contrary to the idea of mobilizing people on their calling. Yeah. yeah. So, that's, so what were those things that you needed to do you weren't able to do? Again, if we bring it back to a discipleship kind of right. approach, yeah. Jesus spent three years with 12 people right. Yeah. to come alongside someone and help them discover their calling give them that permission, encouragement, accountability that's needed, that does not lend itself well to the way we scale the megachurch with, oh, let's have a program, let's do a training class, let's do a 101, 201, 301. We have put scalable structures and processes in place that let us scale the things we do. Well, you don't scale the mobilization of calling. It is a personal thing. Uh, it, it takes time and energy. Uh, it's much more in the category of Jesus spending the three years with the 12 than it is you know, trying to get thousands of people through a class so they can go do whatever it is we need them to do. Right. We have to see ourselves not as mavericks, not as planes without a, an airport to land, but as an extension of the local church. And so uh, for me, the way I internalize this is this. In Ephesians 1, we, we see that Jesus is the head of the church, and we're told the fullness of Jesus into, basically says into every crack and cranny of society. The way I have internalized the mission of the church is that the church and the people of the church are to be the fullness of Jesus out into every crack and cranny of society. Now, God gives each of us a unique equipping. In Ephesians 4, we read about Jesus himself gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some teachers, some shepherds, some evangelists, for the purpose of building up the flock that we might all reach full maturity. Well, that idea of the full maturity we reach, that's kind of a prerequisite or what we need to carry the fullness to society. So I think we've got to find as healthy functioning members in the local church, what does it mean for me simultaneously to be a healthy functioning member in the church, 
doing what I need to do in the church while simultaneously kind of launching out beyond the walls of the church to live out my unique calling beyond the walls of the church. The metaphor I would use is this. Coming out of the, the nuclear Navy, the aircraft carriers that we have in the United States, okay, there's there are about 5,000 people on board because you've got to have a full, you know, you got to do laundry, you got to cook, you got to do cleaning. You need 5,000 people just to run this floating city. Now, the mission of an aircraft carrier is not to be a floating city. The mission is to forward deploy airplanes beyond where the aircraft carrier can go. Now, there's 120 airplanes on an aircraft carrier, 200 pilots. So, take the numbers. You've got 200 pilots to fly 120 planes on mission and another 4,800 people on the carrier simply to service the 200 who are flying planes. Yeah. Now, here's how the church is supposed to work. We're supposed to simultaneously be one of those 4,800 that's doing whatever we need to to live in common and support the faith community. If we need to hold babies clean, do set up and tear down. So we have one role, which mm-hmm. is, yeah. is, is honestly, it's common to all Christians and has nothing to do with our uniqueness. It's our willingness to serve and be part of a family. Right. We have a second issue, though, and this is where we have stunted the effectiveness of the church. It isn't just the 200 out of 5,000 in the church that are called to be the professional people doing the ministry beyond the church. It's all 5,000. But we are doing church in a way that's just like the aircraft carrier. The average person attending church is like one of those 4,800 that's doing the clicking, the cleaning, so that the professionals can do their work. And until we get this back to where, in that metaphor, every person sees their role living in common, being part of the family, and sees themselves as a pilot flying a mission into every crack and cranny of society, we're just not going to get where we need to be. This episode is brought to you in part by Seattle's Union Gospel Mission. Over 13,000 people in the Seattle area are homeless. Kathy is one of many who found a new life through Seattle's Union Gospel Mission. Growing up, my dad and I didn't get along. I kept running away from home until one time I was assaulted. After that, I carried a lot of pain inside of me, and I was doing a lot of drugs. I became homeless. It's taken me almost 40 years to get the healing I needed, but all along, God was looking out for me. He led me to the mission, and the mission has helped me in all kinds of ways. I've learned how to set boundaries and say no. Now I'm looking forward to working for the mission. I want people to know there's hope out there. God can help you heal. And grace will lead me home. To hear more, volunteer, or donate, visit UGM.org. Uh, I, have a, I have a sort of a weird question, and this is like a self-interested question. Um, you're, you talk a lot about calling and what it means to find your sweet spot, and that's something I can relate to. As a person who like started editing, I started doing like the editing thing, which I do now, like very recently in my life. And before that, I had like kind of a job that I was fine. I liked it, but it was like not it was not my sweet spot in, in the least. And one thing I've found is it like really different. One thing that I found is that the calling starts to overwhelm your life. It starts to take it over, especially as someone with a family. Right. Right. So I'm curious how you deal with that tension, because I find it very hard to like, I guess you would just say leave work at home. And certainly when you start framing it as calling, it starts to feel less like work 
and starts to feel like this is my calling. I have to do this all the time. But I think there's an element of that that's clearly not healthy. We've wrestled with like work-life balance for a long time, but when you introduce this calling aspect into it, I think it complicates it a little bit. In, in the Patterson life planning process, which is the one I went through and the one I use now, Tom Patterson, the founder, identifies five domains in life. Your personal relationship with God, your relationship with your family, your relationship at work, your relationships in the church sphere, and then the relationships in the community sphere. And here's what we miss sometimes. When we truly find our sweet spot, when we find that calling God's made us for, it is not compartmentalized. Right. <laughs> I was just not thinking, like, those are like the most, the most Venn diagram thing ever. It, it, yeah. they're, they're not compartmentalized. It's not like my calling is just in one of those five. Yeah. So the example I would give you, um, I am very strongly like on strength finders, and it plays into my calling of being entrepreneurial. I am futuristic, strategic, activator are my top three strength finders. Yeah. Futuristic, strategic, activator. Well, think what those three are. Entrepreneur. Yeah. An entrepreneur's futuristic strategic activator. I can't turn that off. So that entrepreneurial gene plays with my family. If my son's thinking about, I want to do a dog walking business, boom, I'm right there helping him with it. At church, I can't turn it off. In work, I can't turn it off. So I think one of the ways we discover and find our sweet spot of calling is looking at those elements of how God's made us that goes across all five of those domains. Right. Where do we see the elements that are there? Another way of getting at this element, uh, the Patterson Center would, would call it I Remember Whens. You can go back in your life. Right now, everyone listening could make a list, spend five minutes making a list of the profound I Remember When times in life. And what is it that I remember when? Specifically, what causes me to think back 30 years and remember a day? Well, for me... I remember that my youngest age, maybe five, I can remember taking apart and putting back together in our living room, the coffee table over and over, taking it apart, putting it back together. My mom would probably say I was just trying to figure out a better way to assemble the coffee table or something. But you can see the elements of the engineer there all the way back to a, to a young age. And it, when you're a five-year-old, it automatically transcends all domains of life. It's not like you turn it off or turn it all, you know, on and off in different areas. Fast forward to age of 12. I remember when, like it's yesterday, I'm sitting in chemistry class in seventh grade. I'm at the back of the room. There's a chalkboard. The teacher's up front, and he draws an atom. I don't even remember this teacher's name, but he draws an atom, protons, neutrons, electrons flying around, and I was mesmerized. Like mesmerized to the point of going home and saying, I want to be a nuclear physicist someday. Now, up until that point, I thought I wanted to be an architect. I couldn't draw anything. Yeah. Okay. Well, why an architect and why am I mesmerized by someone drawing an atom? And here's the answer. In both of those cases, an architect takes a piece of paper and draws a picture of something not yet seen. My calling, envisaging, helping people create an image or a picture of something not yet seen. Nuclear physicist. I went off and became a nuclear engineer. Honestly, not in retrospect because it was my calling. I was fascinated by it because a teacher could go to the board and draw a picture of something they had never seen and have such certainty on it. I can take just those two points from being 12 years old and 
you, you can you can say embedded in the I remember when of that is this idea that my calling involves coming alongside and helping people create a picture and image of a future possibility. It brings me to life. Now come to the five domains. So my staff at Exponential, they know when I've cut my grass. I have a riding lawnmower and it takes me about an hour to cut my grass. Mm -hmm. Well, as a futuristic strategic activator, I can't ride my lawn tractor for an hour without dreaming up three new organizations or three <laughs> new ideas or three new projects. Yeah. And so the day after I'm on my lawnmower, I'm telling our staff about two or three new things we need to do. Uh-huh. Yeah. So all of that is to say, when we come to life in the middle of our sweet spot, when those elements of how God's made us uniquely to be, to do, to position, it brings us to life not just compartmentalized, but across all the domains of, of life. Do you think that there's a sense in which we need to hold ourselves back? I can just imagine people going, oh, he's got those three. He's got three more things. He's been riding his lawnmower again. <laughs> and they're like maybe exasperated because you, can, you can't do all the things all the time. Do you think like there's a sense in which that, that needs to be like uh, held back in some way? Yes. Uh, and, and that's where the other win in this is the more clarity we get the more we can do a yes or no filter, okay? In my particular case, with the profile of a futurist strategic activator, as you can imagine, one of the most dangerous things is me activating something that shouldn't be activated. So when when Bob Buford first started mentoring me a number of years ago, it was actually profound. But I mean, we had just known each other maybe for a few weeks, and Bob sat me down and said, let me tell you, we may never work that much together, and maybe the reason we're together is so I can tell you this. You need to to not start anything new that you don't have an exit plan for when you're starting it. He literally saw in me that futuristic, strategic, activator bias, and his words of wisdom to me were, check yourself. Don't let yourself activate something new unless you've got an exit plan for it when you're starting. An exit plan meaning what? Meaning someone to take it over, someone to assume it, someone to buy the ownership of it. Okay. So you're not starting all these things and then they're languishing as you start other things elsewhere. Well, at the time that I was introduced to Bob, yeah. I had started multiple national nonprofits, all of which I still had my fingers in. Okay. <laughs> so Bob is seeing all these things I've started and he's realizing I'm kind of stuck a little bit. Like he... I could have, I guess, in retrospect, seen it, but he saw the obvious as an outsider looking in, which is, hey, my wife would say it this way, everything you own owns a part of you. So if you own the startup of a new thing, it owns a part of you. You keep starting new things, each one of them own a part of you. So the idea of having an exit plan is being able to hand off the ownership to someone else where you psychologically aren't the one waking up thinking about it. So you've been in ministry for several years, and I'm curious if there's a particular thing about ministry that has changed you in some way. You know, I, there's two things that immediately come to mind. One of them, I don't know if it's unique to ministry. Certainly, I've gone, you know, I've been in ministry now for 17 total years, and it's been in a season of my life where you naturally have a maturing process going on. Right. So, you know, I, I definitely, you know, I would say just see things differently now than I did 17 years ago. And how much of that's ministry and how much of that's aging, I'm not I'm not sure. From a ministry standpoint, uh, when I came into ministry, I was definitely in the warrior phase. Do, 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 conquer, conquer, conquer. What's the next hill? And for sure, the, the, the biggest learning, the biggest thing that God has worked on me the last 
seven or eight years is the idea that he just doesn't need any doing out of me. He doesn't need me for the doing. It is about the becoming. And so, you know, even in this season of being focused on calling and mobilizing on calling and mobilizing for the right reasons and the right motives, it, it for me is about that question of being. Who am I created to be as the prerequisite that informs and shapes the doing? I think when I came into ministry, it was way more about the doing and the going than it was the being. Did you s- assign your worth to that? Like how much you did? I think the way most of us do. I think especially men, uh, you know, where we see so much of our uh, of our worth and of our scorecard by what we do. If you could talk to your younger self, what would you tell him? That's pretty easy. I talk to young folks in college all the time now, and I and so I'll <laughs> it's just, really fun to do that because you get to you get to do that exact thing. I feel like anytime I talk to a college student, I'm like just saying exactly what I tell myself. And here's what I tell people, especially in this context of calling: chill out. Yeah, <laughs> you, you've got a lot of years to figure this out. Your life is a book. Every book has chapters and themes and subthemes and characters. And you may desperately want to be able to see the whole book right now. And the reality is, trust the author of your book. Trust the fact that God is putting you, you're in a learning laboratory for the next year, two years, five years, ten years. I actually tell people in college at this point, see the entire decade of your 20s as a learning laboratory. You know, don't race to get into the perfect thing. Um, People don't realize, but if you will especially your personal values. I, I think one of the biggest causes of discontent is when people's personal values don't line up with the vocational values of the place where they work. And that's not something that gets taught in Bible college or college or seminary of figuring out your personal values. Well, what's the best way to figure them out? On the job training. But we've got to be intentional about it. And there's no better time than when you're a young person right out of college, take your first job, under the assumption that this isn't going to be my last job, I am going to learn as much as I can about myself in this job. I'm going to figure out what are the things that really frustrate me because it's the things that frustrate you that show the the the, the gap between the organizational values of where you're at and your personal values. And that's not a bad thing. It's not a bad thing that you've got frustrations. Learn from it so that when you go to get your next job, you're all the smarter about it. And it's almost like breaking the combination on a lock with each experience, with each job, with each volunteer position. If if young folks will just take the idea that there's something for me to learn here, Mm -hmm. there's something for me to unlock about myself that I can carry forward into the future, that's that's what it would be. I can look back on my own journey into ministry at this point, that two-year wrestling match, and I desperately did not want to go into ministry. I I didn't want to go into ministry. And part of it was I could not see a picture of what it was. I couldn't see a picture that made any sense. Yeah. Okay. And God had to get me to a place in that two years where it's like, it's just pure obedience. There's going to be no picture of clarity. It's purely a step of obedience. And I would say, isn't that what it's all about though? Like it's before I have clarity, let me take steps. Yeah. And there's no better time than when you're in your, you know, young 20s to to just have that flexibility. It just gets harder and harder the older yeah. you get. So. Yeah. So I've talked to a couple people for this podcast who are not currently ministers in a local church, uh, but they have been. They've had long periods of being pastor, a pastor. They might even be considered pastoral, but they they also like have other things they do. 
And I think a lot of people are working this, through this question, am I called to ministry? And I think that's how we framed it like for a long time. It, there's a call to ministry. It's a very like binary yes or no answer. And I remember the way it was presented to me in, in my youth was you're either called to the ministry and you can think of nothing else you'd rather do or you're not called to ministry. And I'm curious what your opinion is right. of that idea. I would make a distinction in this way. I think there are absolutely people, our senior pastor, Brett Andrews, Mm -hmm. clearly called to preach the gospel of Jesus. Mm -hmm. Now, his calling, in my opinion, is to preach. And I think you're always going to have people, whether you want to call it to the professional side of ministry or just that clarity of the preaching or shepherding of the gospel, there's that category. Now, if I could just be the king, the second category for me would be (laughs) I would say, yes, everyone is called the ministry, just not necessarily being on staff at churches. But the idea that everyone's called the ministry, if if I could just mandate it, the question that every believer would deal with is not, am I called the ministry? The issue is, who do I pastor? I think if we could get a movement across the U.S. going where every believer is asking and answering that question, who do I pastor? I will declare myself the pastor of my gym. I will declare myself the pastor of my office. Yeah. I will declare myself the pastor of Starbucks. If you think about all the sports teams that have chaplains, there's not a Christian out there right now that can't declare themselves the chaplain or the pastor of something. And if we would just start seeing through that lens, yeah. that not, not, ooh, am I called to ministry? Yes, you're called to ministry. Now, what's the context for that? Who, and, and it's a who question. Who are you the pastor of? And the who will answer the where. All right, you've been listening to The Calling. Todd Wilson is the founder of Exponential. That's exponential.org, a national nonprofit organization that champions church multiplication and equips church multipliers. He's written books more, Find Your Personal Calling and Live Life to the Fullest Measure, which you can find in bookstores or on Amazon, which is an online bookstore. And you can follow him on Twitter at Todd Wilson with two D's. That's Todd with two D's, Wilson. Remember to rate and review the show on iTunes. That helps us a lot. The Calling is produced by Cray Allred. Theme music by Lee Rosevere, used under Creative Commons 4.0.